On today's episode of Go Book Yourself, the podcast that helps you master writing, marketing, and publishing one bite at a time, we are digging deep, discovering the beauty of literary devices, the word helpers that expand, enrich, and allow us to extract the best out of word art. Grab your notepad and meet me back here in two minutes. Tune in to Go Book Yourself, powered by Helix Interactive, with your book coach and publishing expert, Hilary Jastrom. So last week, I did it wrong. I lavished love all over our sponsor at the end, and this time I'm on it. We need to spread a little love and appreciation to our sponsor, J. Hill Creative, a hella company, and Bookmark Publishing House, the publisher helping authors everywhere get published. Without them, GBY would be a mere wisp in the wind. So I say huzzah and French kisses. Please visit jhillmark.com. That's jhill. Whoops. Let me start that one over, guys. So last week, I did it wrong. I lavished love all over our sponsor at the end. This time I'm on it. We need to spread a little love and appreciation to our sponsor, J Hill Creative, a hella company, and BPH, Bookmark Publishing House, the publisher helping authors everywhere get published. Without them, Go Book Yourself would be a mere wisp in the wind. So I say huzzah and French kisses. Please visit jhillcreative.com. That's jhill1lcreative.com to embark on reaching your dream of becoming a real live author today. Now, let's get nerdy. We're talking literary devices. And as always, they're a best practice. This is what we do before we start to talk about something. We need to define it before we explain. So we've got two best practices at work. One, the literary devices, which I'll tell you all about in just a minute and how they are going to make your writing better. They're going to make them deeper. They're going to make your writing just irresistible, like you're wearing some of those, that 80s strawberry lip gloss. What was that called? Lip smackers? I think that's what it is. Literary devices are the strawberry lip smackers of the literary world. So let's just put it out there like that. Maybe I'll make a meme out of that. The other best practice is that we always need to define before we explain. And this follows anything. It doesn't matter if you're writing a book. It doesn't matter if you're writing a blog. It doesn't matter what the media is. You always want to define what you're talking about not only to provide the appropriate definition, but you're also ensuring that your reader is on the same page as you. They have the same expectation. So when you're talking about something, they go, I know we're talking about something that means the same thing to the both of us. According to Grammarly, literary elements and literary techniques are both types of literary devices. Literary elements are big picture literary devices that extend throughout the entire work, such as the setting, the theme, the mood, and allegory. Literary techniques are literary devices that deal with individual words and sentences, such as euphemisms and alliteration. And we'll get into all of that in uno momento. 
Masterclass.com says that some of these literary devices operate at the sentence level, while others serve the piece of writing as a whole. So let's get into it. Let's get nerdy birdie. Let's just do it. The first literary device I want to talk to you about is an analogy. I think we all know what an analogy is, but I'll give you an example of an analogy. Let me think about this. It might be, um, are you teaching a man to fish for his life or for a day? So the analogy there would be that I'm teaching him to fish so that he can go on and ensure that he can take care of himself. But as I am the queen of freezing on the spot, I want to make sure that I get you a good one. Here's an example. Life is like a box of chocolates. We've all heard that one. It's not really like a box of chocolates. But if we say that, we can infer that there's something deeper about this statement. Life is surprising. A box of chocolates is surprising. Oftentimes when you eat a box of chocolates or you try and rip into one of those, maybe you'll take one bite and go, ugh, I don't want to do that. You know what? I think life is kind of like that. I'm going to try this adventure. Oh, I totally hate it. I don't want it. So life is like a box of chocolates. That's the example we're going to use for our analogy today. Antithesis. It's two polarizing sentiments to accent both. And I believe it was Neil Armstrong who said that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. What he was doing, maybe without even realizing it, was providing an antithesis. We're at opposite ends of the spectrum. But in doing so, we are emphasizing one small step and one giant leap all at the same time. So one is not bigger than the other. An epigraph, that's our next example of literary device. And I like this one because I use it a lot. An epigraph that's like the quotes that we see at the beginning of the chapters of books. That's why I love them. And the reason I also like them is because, not that I just like them to like them, I like them because they give the reader a different way of interacting with the author. So the reader might go, oh, wow, I didn't know that guy liked that. I didn't know he admired that speaker. I didn't know he thought that way. It also gives you a little bit of a more of an artistic slant. So instead of just coming out and stating something, you're sharing a quote that Somebody else maybe was inspired by, they learned something, they wanted to share something with the world. And now you're sharing that and you're saying, I'm in that thought camp too. I agree with that. And I agree with it and I was moved with it. And reader, I want you to know this is what I like. So it is a little bit more intimate. And it's something that you don't have to do. But I always recommend that authors do it because I think it's surprising for readers. It also gives them a place where they can go, okay, I'm not ingesting so much narrative comment. I can sit here, I can pause for a minute, and I like that. I mean, it's very easy. If you had a book of quotes in front of you, I think you'd find it was very easy to just kind of flip through the pages. Quotes and reading quotes and, and gatherings of quotes. If somebody had an entire book or a chapter, 
it's very easy to take in that information. And so it's pleasant too, but it also evokes some sort of emotion. The quote has been set aside for some reason. Somebody liked it. Somebody felt something about it. That's the biggest thing. Is it inspired somebody? It affected somebody in some way emotionally. And so the quote went on. The quote continued to have a life of its own. So I always recommend using the epigraph at the beginning of the chapter on the chapter page. Next, we'll talk about foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is suspense, baby. It's like feeding out a little trail of grapes for one lucky duck. And you'll note I said grapes and not bread, because bread is not good for ducks. So just so we're <laughs> just so we're clear on that. Foreshadowing lets people know that you might want to hang around because one of my favorite examples, for for instance, before I go off the rails here, is a character will just start coughing for no reason at all. They're going to the homecoming dance. They're having a great time. All of a sudden, they've got a little cough that comes up. Oh, and here it comes again. There's another little cough that comes up in maybe 10 more pages. What is going on? Because there has to be a reason that the author decided to give that character a cough. And whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, it doesn't matter. When you feed out little tidbits like this, you set up the reader and you let them know something is coming. They might not pick up on it. Some readers don't. But you've done your best to say something is coming. There is a reason that I shared this piece of information. And it seems a little bit out of the realm of what's going on. It seems like, huh, that's weird that's going on there. So foreshadowing is great. When it's used appropriately, it can help to bring a reader throughout the entire book. All of a sudden they're at the last page because you've successfully placed those grapes along the trail and you've read them. You've read them out like, this is what it is, this is what's happening, and just like a little hungry duck, they've gobbled them right up. Now they're at the back of the book. So use foreshadowing. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is not just an unnecessary word. It's not uh, a word that's filler, just, really, very, stuff like that. That doesn't really explain the breadth of what we're talking about. Um, an instance of a hyperbole would be something like, I have enough food to feed an entire army. It's unrealistic, it's unneeded, and it's an exaggeration. I think you'll find, and I haven't done research on this, but I'm suspecting that you'll find if you dig into hyperbole that you'll note a lot of cliches. And you know, cliches are just the kryptonite. You don't wanna go there. It's not raining cats and dogs. You don't wanna go there. You don't know it like the back of your hand. These are phrases that have been used a lot. They have been indoctrinated into the American language. And they're not really serving a purpose anymore. But what cliches do and what hyperboles do is they say, or hyperbole does, is it says, I am not trying very hard right now. I am going to write this because it's coming to mind 
You'll find hyperbole in first drafts a lot, and a lot of it gets cut as it should get cut because the editor or the publisher needs to push back on that author and say, I know there's a different way that you can say this. You can say it in your voice. You can say it in a way that mixes in with the rest of the book because hyperbole and cliches tend to stick out like a sore thumb. Did you see what I did there? <laughs> they don't really stick out like a sore thumb, but they do. So you want to avoid them. Metaphor. You know, I still get this mixed up. The difference between the metaphor and the simile, and it really boils down to the words that are used. The simile uses like and as. So we're looking at two different things that are the same. So it's raining men. For example, that's an example of a metaphor. It is raining men. Well, it is not really raining men. Or, um, boy, the like one kind of throws me a little bit. But if you, if you see, and you know what, I'm just going to look it up. There's no reason that I can't do that. And I know some podcasters do that on the fly, too. Here's, um, well, here's a metaphor. He is the apple of my eye. That's a metaphor. So let's look up what a simile is then. And let's think about what the difference is between those. But I'll tell you what, when it came down to it in class, I was like, they're the same. Can I go now? <laughs> you were as brave as a lion. That's a simile. They fought like cats and dogs. So you're hearing like, you're hearing as. He is as funny as a barrel of monkeys as. I would say that's a pretty good rule of thumb. If you're reading as, that's going to be your simile. If it doesn't have it, then it's likely a metaphor. It's raining men would be the metaphor. Onomatopoeia, just a fun word to say. I don't know, just shout it out in conversation. Challenge people to spell it. That's always fun. You can lose a few friends that way. Oink is an onomatopoeic word. They're words that describe sounds. Now, you can use these in books. The door opened. Shh. The dog barked. Like, maybe he had a really... Funny bark, and he was like, lub, lub, lub. That is onomatopoeia for you right there. But you don't want to just, you know, liberally spread these around in your narrative or dialogues. That's just ridiculous. Then you wind up sounding like a real-life version of Animal Farm, so don't do that. Satire. And when I looked at this literary device, I was like, hmm, a satire. This is sarcasm's cousin, but I wanted to know the difference between satire and sarcasm because I think some people probably get confused on it. Also, I'm just a super word nerd and I like to look things up. I mean, even the most obvious things, if I'm using it, or I'm helping somebody use it in a story or a book, I want to make sure that we're using it in the correct context. I'm always looking up things that I generally know what they mean, but I need to make sure that we get as specific as possible. So satire, and I just looked this up on the web, it's exposing people's stupidity or flaws and making fun of them. Gosh, that sounds 
horrible. But if you think of satire, if you think of comedies that you see on TV back in the heyday, everything was a sitcom, right? Satire was huge. And people would always be poking fun at somebody like the like the dumb jock friend, right? That would be satire. Sarcasm, on the other hand, I don't think we need a lesson in that one. That's insincere speech. But if somebody said, were you born in a barn? You'd be like, yes, Gary, I was born in a barn under a bale of hay on a moonlit night. That is sarcasm. You can hear the tone is connected. The whole point of talking about these literary devices is that they are devices that you can put into use to make your writing better, more colorful, more flavorful, make sure that it's not flat. And that plays into what we're going to talk about next, which is tone and humor. It's very hard to get humor right. Sometimes we try too hard. Sometimes we have dry humor. Nobody gets what we're saying. We can also affect different tones besides humor, playful, angry, horrific. It's horrific. When I was writing Killing Carl, this is, <laughs> and I've told this story before. I put it out to a contest at HarperCollins and they said, okay, you're going to put it out here. This is your actual work of your novel in progress or kind of what you've done so far. And I thought I was done and what a big fat lie that was to myself. So you put it out there and people read it and you read theirs and you give feedback and all that stuff. And people said, you know, it's not descriptive enough. You're not giving me enough. And I thought, okay, well, this is a thriller book with some aspects of, I wouldn't call it horror, but it does have some aspects of like, you don't want to be caught in an alley with this guy because he's a serial killer. So you can understand where I'm coming from. So I went full on gore. I, I had bloody bodies in the bathtub, in the hallways, the doorway, whatever. This was a total bloodbath. You would say that affected a horror tone. So that's an example of that. That's why I tell you that story. Also, because anything that we can do to release the pain from the feedback that I received on that first novel of mine, and I think it was like maybe four rewrites in, I literally, I had no idea what I was doing. I just was playing around. I didn't have an editor at that time. I didn't have anyone to lead me, really. I was just kind of going blindly. I didn't start with an outline, so you can imagine what that looked like. It was just the... That was a whole different other horror scene. You could have angry tones, for example. Doris, I said, put the knife down. Why is that an angry tone? I said, meaning I, I'm repeating myself, and we know that to mean... I'm not happy with you if I have to tell you again. I'm getting irritated. A playful tone. Oh, you want to go out back, do ya? Right? If we're going to go out back and play on the swing sets and we're 37 years old, that's playful. So dialogue can help you get there. A narrative form can help you get there. But the point is that, and you don't have to get it right, right away, but 
you want to keep trying and you want to experiment with it. I think a, a really great idea would be to take every single emotion and write from that perspective. Put yourself in that place. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm terrified. What does that sound like? What words are you using? Why is it different? Uh, the personification of inanimate objects, one of my favorites, a chair with arms like a fullback. So we're turning the full-bodied picture of lemonade. We're turning that into a person. It's a really fun thing to do. And you can kind of flip it a little bit too. Her face took on the expression of a TV screen. I don't know. It was it was blank, right? She had, I looked at her and all I could see was a blank book on her face. She had nothing to say. Maybe these aren't the greatest examples, but you can see what I'm getting at. You can flip it back around. And it's a good idea to do that. It's a good idea to play with it. Be like me. Put yourself out there. I literally just stumble over my face on this podcast trying to share with you the things that I've learned and what helps an author. It doesn't always come out right, and sometimes I'm searching for words. But the point is that to keep going and to keep getting better and to keep... It's not even about getting better sometimes. It's about developing more of the sense that I don't care what people think. And I'll return to it again and again and again. Because that builds up the core confidence to go ahead and create what you need to without worrying about what anybody thinks of you. Alliteration. Allison's alligator ambled about. I think that's self-explanatory. I love alliteration in small doses. Otherwise, it starts to sound like some kind of dad jokes are being passed around and I have nothing against dad jokes, but to be bombarded with them all the time, 24-7, would make me go insane. All due respect to insanity. Chiasmus, I'm not saying that right. I'm, I'm certain. That's one of the reasons I didn't move on to become a news anchor because I'm sure they would be like, all right, Hillary, say Kazakhstan. See, I got that wrong. I'm sure I did. <laughs> So an example of chiasmus, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. John F. Kennedy, we've heard this before, is a figure of speech in which the grammar of one phrase, according to litcharts.com, the grammar of one phrase is inverted in the following phrase so that the two key concepts Concepts from the original phrase reappear in the second phrase in inverted order. So you're saying one thing in the first sentence, inverting it in the second. She has all my love. My heart belongs to her. That's another example. And I'm sure that you find yourself doing that in writing. Sometimes when we romanticize writing, sit and stay a spell in your writing for a while. What does it feel like in there? We're always in such a hurry. I gotta get this done. I gotta write 10,000 words. I gotta write 8,500 words. I gotta get this done. Not necessarily. You wanna sit with your writing. How else can I describe this? Amplification, also called dramatizing. And we do this a lot in content editing. Much of what we do, as an example, is that we take dialogue 
and we say, well, we're not going to just talk about this all in dialogue. And, and the flip is true also. We're not going to just talk about this all in the narrative. It's about mixing it up. It's about creating that dynamic where the reader goes, wow, I'm really swept up in the story. Amplification has a lot to do with communicating those details. So think about that. If you're telling a story, you don't want to just tell it in one way. I'm just going to give you the narrative version of it. This is what happened. I'm not going to give you any dialogue around it. I'm not really going to give you any details. I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I use the example of the boy going to the store a lot because that's an example I can think of, but maybe he sat on the floor and he pet the puppy. Well, you can ask yourself, what kind of puppy was he? Well, what kind of floor was he sitting on? Why did he sit on the floor? Why didn't he sit in the chair? What led him to even pet the puppy in the first place? Is it his puppy? Where'd the puppy come from? Does he live there? There's all kinds of things that you can think about in your story that the reader is going to be wondering if you're a little vaguer than you need to be. So if I'm taking a long drive in a car and that's all I'm talking about, I got in the car, I shut the door, I put on my seatbelt and I got ready for the ride. Well, how long is the ride? Well, where are you going? Why are you going there? Why aren't you driving? Who's driving? What are you talking about in the car? If you're in the car for three hours, if you're in the car for 10 minutes, the conversation is going to be a little bit different Maybe you're starting a conversation for the 10 minute jag that you're going to have to finish later. Maybe for the three hours, the conversation drags out a little bit. You don't know the person very well and you're having a hard time figuring out what to talk about. The dynamics of every single experience and scene are different. And we have the opportunity with these literary devices to bring them to life. She stared out the window like she'd never imagined leaving her home. Things of that nature bring him to life. He sat on the leather seat and it was so hot it reminded him of the playground slide that he used to burn his legs on when he was a kid. These are examples. And I'm doing this on the fly, so cut me a break, man. If I'm sure you're probably like, wow, stumble over your words much. But it's the same thing. Play. Think about it. She was forlorn when she stared out the window. She knew she wouldn't see her mother again for 15 weeks. It was the longest time she had ever, ever been away. Her baby was born. She couldn't wait to meet her only to give her up for adoption. What does that look like? These are the things that you need to ask yourself. What is at stake in this scene? How can I bring it to life? Can I use dramatic irony? The classic example of dramatic irony, which is another literary device, is when Romeo and Juliet die. I like to use a more modern version when I read about the Romeo and Juliet thing, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's that's trite. That's probably trotted out a lot, right? I think of A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper. The movie that I wanted to like 
And I'll tell you, if you are going to watch it, I'm going to issue a disclaimer that it talks about suicide and it portrays suicide. So you need to be very careful and, and ready to watch it. And as always, if you need help, reach out. But Bradley Cooper, and I'm going to, if you haven't seen the movie and you want to see it, right now, this is your example. Come back to this later after you've watched the movie because I am about to give it away. But there's a, there's an old saying, it's kind of like uh, you have a year to write out your thank you notes for your wedding. So if you're hearing this and you're like, oh man, it's been three months and you got nine more months left, you're all right. In the example of Bradley Cooper, and here comes the spoiler alert, you have plenty of time to get away and come back to the show later. Here's a spoiler alert. Bradley Cooper is an alcoholic. He gets together with Lady Gaga. I can't remember her name in the movie because she'll just always be Lady Gaga to me. So he gets together with her. He strikes me as a man who doesn't believe he can be loved. And then I think he starts to believe it a little bit. And he gets married to her. And they seem like they're going to work things out. And just as they should be getting into their happily ever after... That's not what happens. He gets the girl and then he dies. And you know how he dies because I told you earlier. That is dramatic irony. He works and works and works to get the girl. He works and works and works on himself to believe that he's lovable and then he's gone. So that's an example of that. Vignettes. This is our very last example. Vignettes are slices of life. And when I was researching vignettes, somebody stated that blogs are a great example of a vignette. A lot of blogs offer many of these little mini stories or short important scenes in a writer's life or in the blogger's life. I have to tell you about going to the store and why I bought this particular item because it led to this event in my life later. So laying down the proof for further experiences, you might think of a vignette that way. And vignettes are communicated for many, many different reasons. To evoke emotion, they might provide a little foreshadowing, they might be geared to make you connect to the blogger, to the writer. A lot of people can identify with vignettes as well since they're everyday slices. They're not so far-fetched. This is how I think of a vignette anyways. I mean, I imagine you could have a far-out vignette, but it would be a little less believable. These vignettes are incorporated more readily into people's lives and writings in an attempt to say I went through this and I want you to go through it with me I want you to feel some emotion with me because it's good for you reader to feel that emotion it's good for you to go there in your head but it's also good for me as the author because I know that I've evoked that emotion in you and so now I feel closer to you so hopefully 
these literary devices have helped you think about your writing in a different way. I'm also a huge fan of juxtaposition that is not a literary device, but it I think about things like that when we talk about writing vignettes. I'm always trying to be as memorable as possible, as punchy as possible, and I think a vignette is the perfect place to try that out. And that's what I encourage you to do. Try out everything that we've talked about today. Even if you've never sat down and invented a new sound for something, the way a door opens, the way a window opens, the shuffling walk of an old man down the street, kershunk, kershunk. What if he drags his legs? One leg, what if he drags one legs? So then it would be like, Claude Kershunk, Claude Kershunk. I'm sure you're greatly enjoying this right now. <laughs> I'm greatly enjoying it. Making up new noises and words. And that's the whole point of writing is to have fun with it. Even if it's business writing, to have fun with it. I made this thing for you, reader. I got into it. It was so great. Explored myself. I dissected my emotions. I laid myself out on the table flayed open so you could see who I was. These are super duper tools to amp up your writing. Mood, emotion, tone, and experience. And obviously they carry over on to your reader. When you are writing and you want to improve to keep becoming more solid, learn the tools of the trade. That's vital. How to become a better writer? What can I implement that I might not even be aware of? How do I become a better accountant? How do I become a better doctor? How do I become a better car salesman? I have to learn, or car salesperson, I have to learn the tools of the trade. Take these literary devices and take some time to figure out how they can benefit you and your writing. And maybe you can apply one of them to something you're working on right now. And after all that, thank you for joining us on this episode of Go Book Yourself. Now the jig is up. You know where to go. Until next time, authors, write on.